History This Week, December 2nd, 1943. I'm Sally Helm. It's dark out, but the harbor is lit up, easy to see from the sky. Because in the Italian port city of Bari on the Adriatic Sea, the normal wartime blackout orders have been lifted. Soldiers need the light to load and unload essential cargo. And people think it's fine to keep the lights on in Bari. Elsewhere in Italy, towns are ravaged. People can't get enough bread to eat. But this Allied-occupied port hasn't seen much fighting. There are soldiers walking around buying ice cream from street vendors. On this very day, Sir Arthur Conningham, a senior official in the British Royal Air Force, said that if the German Luftwaffe tried to mess with Bari, he would, quote, regard it as a personal affront. Maybe he shouldn't have said that, and maybe you know what's going to happen next. One Nazi plane flies over Bari, then another. Soon, there will be 105. They're dropping bombs on the harbor, which is full of Allied ships. Those ships carry everything from food and blankets to tanks and ambulances. And in the hull of one of them, there is a secret cargo. Something the Allies are hiding. A banned chemical weapon. Mustard gas. Almost no one knows about this. Not the Luftwaffe pilots, not the soldiers who are scrambling to react to this raid. And soon, the harbor is on fire. An ammunition tanker explodes. The flames are a thousand feet high. There's fuel gushing into the water. Then that's burning too. Men dive from their ships and try to swim to safety. And meanwhile, all around them, liquid mustard gas is pouring into the water. They're swimming right through it. This disaster is a part of two different stories. First, it is a wartime catastrophe. It kills hundreds and inflicts terrible injuries on many more. But it is also part of a story of healing. Because when scientists study the effects of mustard gas, they make discoveries that give rise to an entirely new field of medicine that will go on to save countless lives. Today, the strange story of the Bari disaster. Why was there mustard gas in the harbor that day? And how is the story of this illegal chemical weapon all bound up with the story of chemotherapy? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mm-hmm. 
Jeanette Conant has written half a dozen books about World War II, and she encountered the story of the mustard gas at Bari when she was working on one of them. This one was personal. Well, I was doing a biography of my grandfather. In World War I, my grandfather was recruited by the Chemical Warfare Service as a young chemist. And he began working on making mustard gas and basically catching up to the French and Germans, which were way ahead of us in making chemical weapons. The Germans were the first to use poison gas in World War I. In a battle at Ypres, the armies found themselves choking in these yellow clouds. The gas in this battle was chlorine-based, but mustard gas soon became the most common chemical agent in combat. Mustard gas is a compound that can burn your eyes, blister your skin, and damage your lungs. It's not chemically related to mustard, but it has a garlicky smell, so that's where it got its name. And it had a devastating effect on the battlefield. Such horrific stories came from World War I because of poison gas, the way it floated silently and deadly over the battlefield, killing these young men where they stood. You could release it and just poison men in their trenches, and they would have so many casualties who were blind and choking and unable to breathe. Gas warfare caused 1.3 million casualties during the war, including 90,000 deaths. And after the war, the world takes action against poison gas warfare. It was outlawed by the Geneva Convention in 1925. So mustard gas was now illegal to use in warfare. But... The interesting thing about the Geneva Convention that most people don't realize is the fine print said that they could make it and continue to research and produce it. Which brings us back to Jeanette Conant's grandfather, James Conant. In 1940, he was recruited again by the U.S. government for weapons research. He was actually one of the leaders of the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb. And as Jeanette is looking through some files, researching this part of his life... I saw a mention of a whole group of classified mustard gas casualties from World War II. And I thought, well, I've written a series of books about World War II, and I've read hundreds, and I thought, I don't know of any mustard gas battle in World War II. How could there be a whole huge list of mustard gas casualties? So I just kept digging, and then I became obsessed with it. So she finished the biography of her grandfather and set about researching. Most Americans think that we didn't use poison gas in World War II, which is only partially true. In fact, we developed tons and tons of poison gas because all of our generals were convinced that if Hitler began to lose the war, he would resort to poison gas. So the U.S. government wanted to be ready. They were developing poison gases, including mustard gas, for use in battle. And they were simultaneously looking at something else mustard gas as medicine. Well, that idea came up in stages. At the end of World War I, scientists began to notice that it might have some medical benefits in terms of skin cancers. But in the years just after World War I, that research basically goes unnoticed. Because of the great revulsion towards anything related to poison gas at the end of that war, I think most of those researchers lost their funding and really their energy. 
During World War II, though, the research starts up again. It springs from the massive investment that the U.S. is making in chemical weapons preparedness. The Americans get their hands on a sample of a new kind of German poison gas. Up until this point, mustard gases had been sulfur-based. That's what gave them their smell. But this one is nitrogen-based. It's odorless, colorless. It didn't produce a yellow cloud, so it was even more of a silent killer. And immediately, the Chemical Warfare Service started doing massive testing of these smuggled German compounds to determine their effects on the human body. Some of that testing ends up in the hands of a Colonel Stuart Alexander. He's a young man who had just graduated from medical school in 1937 at the age of 23. He was very mild-mannered and he had dimples and blonde hair and the nurses all had crushes on him. Then when the war starts, Alexander enlists. But the funny thing was he was extremely nearsighted. So he flunked the medical and he was so desperate to serve that when the doctor turned around to fill out the form, he memorized the eye chart, then insisted that the doctor give it to him again, and then he passed. Unfortunately, his glasses kept giving him trouble. During the training exercises, he couldn't fit the helmet with the gas mask over his glasses. So he developed a new kind of gas mask that was more flexible, lighter, and could fit over your glasses. And a uh, top official at the Chemical Warfare Service immediately contacted him and said, we need you here. Alexander gets swept up into the Chemical Warfare Service. He's given a crash course in the science of chemical weapons. Soon, he starts working with a team at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, testing this stolen German mustard gas. They're trying to understand its effects by testing it on rabbits. And they notice something strange. The rabbit's white blood cell count plummeted to almost nothing. So the first thing they thought was that they'd had a bad batch of rabbits. They got more rabbits. They got the same effect. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. They had never seen this kind of effect before. This plummeting white blood cell count could have important medical implications. Because in many blood cancers, white blood cells get out of control, start replicating, and attack healthy blood cells. And that is how the malignant cancer spreads through the body. So if you can stop those white blood cells, if you can target them without destroying healthy tissue, you can slow, possibly stop, the spread of cancer. Dr. Alexander realizes this could be big. In the spring of 1942, he takes it to his bosses. But remember, that's just months after Pearl Harbor, and his bosses at the Chemical Warfare Service said, look, kid, you know, chasing miracle cures is going to be fine for after the war, but your job is to develop antidotes and protections for our men in battle, get back to work. So Alexander drops this, for now. After all, he's just a young guy with a hunch. But luckily, there are other scientists who are onto the same thing. A team at Yale University was working with those same German gas samples, and they noticed this effect on white blood cells, too. Those scientists go way beyond rabbits and actually test this gas as a treatment for a terminal cancer patient in late 1942. The results are promising, though the patient doesn't make it. And the study is top secret. 
it's only visible to people at the highest levels of government. Meanwhile, World War II is well underway. It's now 1943. The Allies are fighting the Japanese in the Pacific. They've driven the Germans out of North Africa and pushed into Italy. The campaign there is proving much more difficult than expected. It was winter and it was cold. The mountains turned into giant mudslides. We made incredibly slow progress. And so by December 1943, we were behind. The uh, morale was very low. The famous war correspondent Ernie Pyle had dubbed it the Misery March. The Allies have secured the Italian city of Bari, a vital industrial port. It helps supply the whole Italian campaign. They've protected it vigorously, and so far, it's seen little fighting. It still had shop windows full of bread and cake. The restaurants were all open, and it was just a bustling seaport in December 1943. But it was also a prime target. Not only are its streets filled with hundreds of Allied troops, but its harbor is filled with Allied ships. And one of those ships is the SS John Harvey. And in the hull of the John Harvey is a store of liquid mustard gas. It's there because the Germans have threatened to use poison gas against soldiers in the war. In response, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill had announced to the Germans that if they dared use poison gas, we would retaliate in kind with overwhelming force. They say, if you use mustard gas, we'll use triple the amount against your forces. Now, they needed the stockpile to back up that threat. And on December 2nd, 1943, part of that stockpile is sitting in a ship in the harbor at Bari. The Germans don't know that the mustard gas is there. But, unrelatedly, they choose this moment to make their attack on this important Allied port. On the night of December 2nd, at 7.25 p.m., the first German planes appear in the sky. They drop something called duple, these foil strips, which were a new kind of radar jamming device. And they drop them and they sort of fell silently down, almost like tinsel in the sky. And they created a cloud of aluminum foil. And that jammed our radar so that we could not get a read on the incoming planes. And then 105 German planes bomb the port. The Allied ships are full of explosive ammunition. And when the harbor is bombed, all of these ships ignited and burst into flame. Fuel spills out into the water. And the whole surface area of the harbor was on fire. It was sort of a sea of flames. But some of the worst damage will come from that top secret cargo, the mustard gas. The USS John Harvey which didn't take a direct hit, caught fire and exploded and released an enormous cloud of mustard gas over Bari and tons and tons of liquid mustard gas leaked into the water. It mixes with the fuel and forms a toxic soup on the water's surface as soldiers are swimming for their lives. 
The whole raid lasts about 20 minutes. 17 ships sink, over a thousand servicemen are killed, and over a thousand civilians. It was a, a devastating air raid. In fact, it was the worst naval disaster of the war, and it was immediately dubbed the Little Pearl Harbor. In the aftermath, the under-equipped local hospital is overwhelmed with casualties. They treat the most serious injuries first. Those who aren't so badly wounded are sitting in their wet uniforms on the dock. When they eventually make it to the hospital... They gave them the normal treatment that they did at time of war, which was blankets to keep them warm, a shot of morphine, and some hot, strong, sweet tea to sort of sustain them until a doctor could look at them. By the next day, many of these boys that had come in in what they thought was okay condition, when they finally removed their grimy uniforms, their skin was completely uh, inflamed, burning red, or a very strange sort of orangey red color. Some of them had developed blisters the size of balloons. And then very quickly, within hours of daylight the next day, hundreds and hundreds of men reported that they were going blind. So they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what. Because they didn't know that there was mustard gas aboard the John Harvey. Still, they suspect some kind of chemical agent. They worry it could be a new, unknown weapon that the Germans have developed and dropped from their bombers. And they send a red alert, basically a panic call, to Allied Force Headquarters in Algiers, which is Eisenhower's headquarters. And Eisenhower had been convinced that the Germans might use poison gas in the Mediterranean and had taken the precaution of having a chemical warfare expert on his staff. His name? Colonel Stuart Francis Alexander, that young doctor from Edward Arsenal. He's about to be right in the middle of this chemical weapons disaster. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since his research with rabbits at Edward Arsenal, Dr. Alexander has seen real combat. He went through the invasion of North Africa with General Patton. He's now serving with General Eisenhower. And when this panic call comes in, Alexander, a chemical weapons expert, gets sent to Bari 
to see what he can find. By the time he arrives, it's day five, and the hospitals are just full of these severely burnt and sick sailors with all kinds of strange, unexplained side effects. Some patients were dying suddenly after they seemed to have recovered. And so Alexander? He walked through the wards and he saw immediately that on some of the sailors, you could see literally where they had been splashed by water, say, and the splash marks was all raised and red, uh, angry skin. So he knew right away that there had to been some kind of chemical contaminant in the water. And as he walked the hospital wards, he was pretty sure he detected the smell of mustard. That is, of course, an obvious sign to a chemical warfare expert like Dr. Alexander. He asks the Allied authorities, is it possible there was mustard gas at the harbor? And of course, they dismissed it immediately. They said, there's no mustard gas in World War II. There's certainly no mustard gas in Bari, Italy, and you must be wrong. But Alexander still thinks it might have been mustard gas. He wonders, could it have come from the German bombs somehow? He dispatches some divers to go into the harbor and look for pieces of the bombs as evidence. And he also walks through the bombed-out port to investigate himself. He examines the remains of the ships. He interviews eyewitnesses about the attack. And he realizes it's not likely that the gas was in the bombs. If it were, it would have covered a wider area, caused a lot more damage. So he's back to his theory about the water. And so he got maps of the harbor. He demanded that the British supply him with a chart of where all of the cargo ships had been lined up. He also interviews soldiers. He asked them, what ship were you on? Where did you jump into the harbor? And he began to see that the greatest number of casualties were on this one boat, the John Harvey. And it seemed like the most number of casualties was surrounding this area. And therefore, this had to be the center of the chemical explosion. At around this same moment, he hears back from those divers. They've pulled up some gas shells from the bottom of the harbor. They realized that they were not German. The German mustard gas shells are always marked with a distinctive gold cross. And instead, they were clearly marked American mustard gas shells. And so he realized it was our own mustard gas that had poisoned our own sailors. And therefore, a cover-up was most likely in place. And that's why he hadn't been told the truth. The cover-up cost lives. The worst damage from a poison gas is done within 10 minutes of exposure. Had the proper warning been given, most of them could have immediately been hosed down the minute they got to shore and they would have lived. But instead, they literally sat for 12 to 24 hours in their damp uniforms, basically marinating in poison gas. It's too late to save most of these soldiers. But Alexander thinks that the way to honor the dead is to document what happened to them. He is determined to write a report that shows the effects of mustard gas on the victims. He wonders if one of those effects might be a plummeting white blood cell count, like he observed in his experiments with rabbits. And he finds, yes, the victims of mustard gas have almost zero white blood cells. 
and he realizes that this is a medical breakthrough and can have enormous impact in cancer medicine. Alexander also honors the dead by being honest about the way they died. He lists mustard gas as the cause of death for many of these soldiers. But the higher-ups don't let that stand. The diagnosis of mustard gas is deleted from every individual's medical chart. No mention is allowed in any of the dispatches. Stuart Alexander's name as presiding doctor is removed from the medical charts. He is told that he has to leave Bari, and mustard gas is stricken from the official record. Alexander's report lands in the hands of his boss in the medical division of the Chemical Warfare Service, a man named Cornelius P. Rhodes. He's better known as Dusty. As a civilian, he had been in charge of Memorial Hospital in New York, which was one of the most important cancer hospitals in the world at the time. So he reads the Bari report. And he was immediately struck by Alexander's meticulous investigation and the Bari data. And he wrote back promptly that it was of such immense value to medicine that it represented a landmark in the history of mustard poisoning. He also sees the possibilities for cancer treatment. And because he has this high-up role in the military, he knows about those initial promising results in just a few patients at Yale University. And now... Dr. Rhodes was looking at, you know, 50, 60 autopsy reports showing this plummeted white blood cell count, this overwhelming confirmation of what they had begun to see in the Yale study. In a sense, all of Colonel Rhodes's ambitions for Memorial Hospital now converged with Alexander's Bari report and crystallized into a single mission, and that was to exploit the secret military research into poison gas to find a chemical that could selectively kill cancer cells. The work begins right away. And as soon as the war is over, Rhodes convinces Alfred P. Sloan and Charles Kettering, two executives at General Motors, to fund a new cancer research institute. The famous Sloan Kettering is born. Sloan Kettering was officially unveiled on August 7th, 1945, which was the same day that the world learned that the atom bomb had been dropped on Japan and the war was over. By the way, Dusty Rhodes isn't just known for his contributions to chemotherapy. He's also known for a racist letter that he wrote to a medical colleague in 1932. Based on that letter, he was investigated for medical ethics violations in Puerto Rico. He was cleared of wrongdoing, but Conant told us the racist statements he made cast a real shadow over his whole career. Doctors and scientists spend the next decade or so refining mustard gas as a form of cancer treatment. The first medication is approved by the FDA in 1949. It's called mustardin. The drug isn't perfect. Full remissions are still few and far between, and the side effects can be painful. After all, this was a weapon of war. But progress continues. By 1953, they developed two extremely effective new medicines, which in fact are in use today, and they achieved remissions in children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. ALL was a common cancer in toddlers. They might die within weeks of diagnosis. But today, chemotherapy means that more than 90% of kids with this type of cancer can be cured. These drugs really were a huge breakthrough. 
As a result of these medical triumphs in the treatment of cancer, the American Cancer Society credits the Bari disaster with initiating the modern age of cancer chemotherapy. Stuart Alexander didn't go on to become a renowned cancer researcher. He fell in love with an army nurse, and before the war ended, she was pregnant. He went back to New Jersey, took over his father's medical practice, and raised a family. Rhodes offered him a job at Sloan Kettering, but he turned it down. He was young, uh, he had survived the war, and he put chemical weapons behind him. For many people, including Alexander himself, those weapons represented the horrors of war. But Alexander and other scientists like him saw what else they could be. And so, when the war was over, those weapons became a cure. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a seven-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device, with new videos added every week. To start your free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.